Hey everyone, Eric Watson here, and this is the recorded audio of a DM-only live stream in which I prepare for our next live session and chat with fans twice a week at my Rogue Watson YouTube channel. Please note that these streams are full of DM spoilers. This was not originally intended for an audio-only format, but has been converted to a podcast for your convenience. The channel and by extension this podcast are supported by Patreon. If you'd like to support my work, you can do so at patreon.com slash roguewatson. Enjoy the show. Here, freelance writer, player of games, writer of virtual quarter videos, and at tabletop role playing aficionado. Welcome to the Thursday edition of my bi weekly behind the scenes DM only live stream crafting Icewind Dale, in which I build right and prepare for our next session of Rhyme of the Frost Maiden. If you are playing characters, all Robin, Frey, Celeste, Edmund, or Thimbleweed, this stream is not meant for you, but for the rest of you, welcome. Assuming, of course, you are okay with spoilers. We stream our D&D sessions live on YouTube every Friday. Watch all of our sessions and reviews here on the channel. You can follow me on Twitter at Rogue Watson and join our official Discord server with invite link into the description below. If you'd like to support the channel, please check out patreon.com slash roguewatson. For our campaign, we use roll20.net and for streaming, I use open broadcaster software with Streamlabs. I apologize for being a few minutes late. I am feeling better. Hopefully I sound better. Still not quite at 100%. I'm still draining a little bit, but it's less about being fully congested and just more about having to blow my nose every once in a while. So, But we're getting there. We're getting there. We're on the mend, as they say. So hopefully I'm limb sounding and you can stand listening to me and it's not too nasally alright so we're still talking about the caves of hunger and honestly the best way that's helping me prepare for this mega dungeon uh, it's just a package being delivered I think okay <laughs> it is early December which means it is the era of constantly getting packages coming in which we ordered uh, Black Friday, Summer Monday etc etc so Fantastic. I don't know why they feel the need to ring the door, though. Um, anyway, I was saying that um, one of the best ways to help me prepare for these big dungeons is to actually just go through them room by room meticulously, and then I can try to figure out um, how to go from there, I think. And this one is particularly difficult because, well, it's it's large, first of all. It's almost 40 rooms, I guess. And it's got so many branching paths, mainly... One area branches into two completely different sections, I believe. Yeah, because this... Oh, the right side does actually connect here. Okay, that's interesting. Um, and then there's another branching section in the lower left corner. So there's, I think, three different paths the players can take, or more if they end up doubling back and, you know, going back into other areas. Uh, and until they actually get to their destination. But, you know, I've mentioned before, the interesting thing is they don't actually know where their destination is this is a, a kind of a unique dungeon that it's the whole point of it is just to get through it so there's not they don't have a like they don't even know this dungeon is coming they, they may expect to just open the the wall up and just waltz right into etherin like take a single tunnel down and get into etherin and not even expect a full you know cave system let alone a gigantic like the biggest dungeon in the game cave system coming up so it'll be interesting to see like how the players prepare for this what they're 
where they're coming at because I come in with the burden of knowledge where I know all and it's hard for me to, you know, as always with a dungeon design is to put myself in their shoes where I literally have no idea what to expect or what they're trying to do. The big thing, of course, because we're playing on a VTT means that they are going to be clued into how large this area is as soon as I put them on this map because you can just see, in fact, when I do these crafting streams, I default to 50% zoom. So you can see if I'm at 100% zoom, uh, this is what it looks like right now. And they're just going to see, you know, let's put friend on the map like here. You know, you've got this, but then you start scrolling and you're just like, oh my gods. Because I can't hide that on the VTT. So that's an interesting piece of information is they're going to, I'm still scrolling by the way. <laughs> they're going to kind of know and maybe, you know, given how long it takes to load, like just how big this area is. So it'll, I guess we're kind of see. And yeah, Stan, we missed you on the, uh, on that last uh, patron D&D game. I, it would have been very interesting had they had your turn on that ability uh, during at least that first fight we had. Um, I won't spoil anything on here, but uh, probably could have made uh, quite the difference on that one. Uh, so anyway, I, I think it's it helps me to just prepare, continue like just prepping this overall area, even though we're not going to reach the later stages later on, because it will help me kind of bring everything together. Um, which I believe we've done a pretty good job of just itemizing room by room and, and kind of doing a general prep without doing specific prep. And by general prep, I mean having I it, like literally like pre-production for a movie or, or TV show, like literally like coming up with the ideas and like the storyboards and everything. And then the real prep will be like typing in like, you know, dialogue and descriptions and making sure I've got the right stat blocks in and all that. I haven't done really any of that part of the work yet because... I, we're not going to get very far in this dungeon this session. We've got the, a big dialogue sequence um, and some social role playing stuff we're going to do at the and we're going to level up to 12, you know, do a long rest and all that. So I think we'll probably just get through this these first couple rooms, which we've got pretty nailed down. We'll have the flame skull fight. Um, we may trigger us. I think it'll probably trigger a psychic haunting in H5 here. Um, yeah, and then I think that's probably as far as we're going to end up getting, I would presume, that Flame Skull fight. Uh, well, it may, may go fast. I don't know. So I think we left off. Uh, it's an insanely difficult dungeon. It, Yeah, it's it's pretty big. Um, and an idea that the Codex could let someone pull Aureo Monster like a bag of tricks. It could leave off the pages in action. Just, just, just. You did, yes. Uh... That's a cool idea. Um, I think somebody, was it you that mentioned on the last stream, LazyDM, um, about like summoning a cold light walker? Those are all cool ideas. They're very, very powerful tools um, to give to a player. That That is something I need to do for real prep, what I'm talking about, which is somebody might want to try to attune to the book. Uh, Frey is probably the best one to do it thematically because she's already a follower and she may just treat it obsessively but I don't know if she would actually want to given that it would take up one of her attunement slots so that would be an interesting trade-off I guess but I, I could have some abilities and I think she's already got immunity to cold damage right because she's already blessed by um or she's already got the blessing and she's already got a once per use cone of cold so yeah, maybe it's obviously something thematic with our, my my original concept was to turn the book into um, mechanically like an instrument of the bards, which includes just spells, 
um, that you can cast like once per rest that are all, you know, various cold themed um, spells involved. And, you know, the my villains were saying that well, we can use this book to maybe reverse uh, the uh, never ending night. I think they are. They may have that. They may have been pure speculation on their part. That you know, <laughs> I think what they were hoping for is it would get really get into here and into because I, I between you and me, I don't think they really care about Icewind Dale. That's that's kind of their villain thing talking. Is they they care more about the plunder and the loot than they do about the people of the Dale. Uh, whereas the players are uh, actually maybe the opposite. Surprisingly, it's maybe one of the more good aligned uh, player groupings uh, we've had in in some campaigns. So I don't have that as part of the rhymes um, skills, or or really I should probably make it more of an artifact, a powerful level artifact, because it is supposed to have her like divine power in there. So maybe it can cast like I don't know, a, a maybe instead of reversing, it, it could just cast like various versions of like blizzards and darkness spells and things of that nature. But I, well, I mentioned it only has a portion, so maybe it's still tied to like you can only do it every so often. I, I do need to get that figured out, though, because they're going to want to examine that freaking book. So that is some real planning I need to figure out. But I'm still on the pre-production stage, as you can tell. <laughs> I'm going to have to work really hard to not kill them all. I mean, that's always what I do. I work really... And that's... To me, that's the best difficulty level for d and it, it's, it's that sweet spot, right? You want to... You want to hit that sweet, not every battle, obviously, but in the really cool, meaningful battles, you want to hit that sweet spot where it feels like a victory is snatched from the jaws of defeat. Because ultimately, I do want my players to win and succeed. We're, I'm not really running it as a, you know, terrifyingly challenging roguelike or anything like that. Where I, you know, and I read all these uh, Reddit threads about like, hey, I just there was a recent one I think that was either on D and D or one of them, and it was like, hey, I finished Rhyme and we had like 14 player deaths or something, player character deaths. I was like, this is such a weird, it, it's like a brag thing that DMs do about killing their, and I was like, I don't know, it's it, it's weird to me. Um, maybe I have a different relationship now that I start, like, commissioning artwork for my players, too. <laughs> really, really don't want to kill them off. Uh, but I will say that some deaths can be earned and can be very cool uh, in the right context. So I guess that's, I'm going off on a, on a separate tangent now about, the difficulty level of the campaign, but I, and, you know, when we get up to these levels, they're going to be level 12, the difficulty just honestly kind of goes out the door, and things are so crazy, it's such a swingy game with the dice, and initiative rolls mattering so much, and saving throws, like, it's, it's, it's a challenge, it's been a real challenge, and sometimes I can hit that sweet spot pretty well, and other times you end up with the, the Dazon boss fight that just completely shut down the party to where nobody was really having, you know, it was difficult, but not in a fun, difficult way. Like, nobody was really having a good time at that point. So, live and learn. Look at the artifact section of the DMG. Turn the book into a minor artifact. Yeah, that's... Which, what? Just tells you, like, hey, it should have this many features. Um, I was... Can I pull that up on roll 20? I've got the books, but I think it's more entertaining if you guys can see them. Sample artifacts, artifact descriptions... Artifact properties. I mean, I've got the DMG on here. By the way, I'm working on the uh, Tomb of Beasts uh, three layers review. Um, I should be able to get that done and have it uploaded for patrons today. 
And then for everybody uh, tomorrow, it's taking me a little bit longer as the Roll20 reviews usually do because it's a lot more content. The Tomb of Beasts, three layers, by the way. 23 layers. That's crazy. That is crazy. The last one, Tomb of Beasts, two layers, which I also reviewed, had 14. <laughs> I was like, good lord. So a little bit of tease for that. Uh, but my initial thing on all of the Cobalt Press stuff has been very thumbs up on it. Uh, this is, for some reason, just tied to Theros, even though it said DMG. I don't know why it's doing that. Maybe it. Maybe I won't be able to get it on here. Also tied to Theros. Okay, well, that's, that's a bug with Roll20 or not, but all right. Let me... I'll take a quick gander. Uh, do you have a page for me? Turn to your rule books. Ancient items, artifacts, is on 219, minor beneficial properties. Artifacts only for you want them to, they much plot devices, magic items, very much so. Unique magic item of tremendous power with its own origin and history. Uh, let's see. It just has a D100 table, although it's we got like 10 entries. You're immune to disease, you can't be charmed or frightened. Resistance against one day. Are you supposed to have one of these? That could be an item posing. Fine. Artifact properties. Artifact might have other properties that are either beneficial or detrimental. You can choose such properties from the tables in this section or determine them randomly. You can also invent new beneficial and detrimental properties. Well, no shit. An artifact can have as many as four minor beneficial properties and two major beneficial properties. I wish I could pull this up on here, but I don't think... Fact. I mean, it, it should be on here, but for some reason Theros is overtaking it. Oh, here we go. There's a drop-down menu. Aha! Okay. I realize you can change that. Yeah, sorry, we're looking at the codicil, which is good. I do need to prep this. Okay, so that's nice. I can pull it up on here and not just stare at my book. This is this is what I was looking at. Artifact can have as many as four minor beneficial properties and two major beneficial properties. Yeah, so the codicil currently uh, is here, and it literally just says a creature with a codicil in its possession has resistance to cold damage. Obviously, phrase blessing overrides that she's got immunity, and then attuning to it may confer additional properties. So, if if somebody wants to attune to it, first of all, the requirement would be you would have to accept Aural as your Lord and Savior, um, as your deity of choice. Which, uh, again, phrase the obvious choice for a thematic reason because she already done she's already done that and actually gone through the blessing. Um, proficiency in a skill, immune to disease, can't be charmed or frightened. That's actually a a good buff right there. Resistance against one damage type of the DM's choice. That's already in the codicil. You can use an action to cast one cantrip. Okay. We could use like cold ray or something, or ray of frost, I guess it's called. You can use an action to cast one first level spell chosen by the DM. After you cast the spell, roll a d6. On a roll of one to five, you can't cast it again until the next dawn. That's weird. It's like a reverse recharge, isn't it? I think it'd be more fun to turn it into a normal recharge. 
where you can keep casting. Well, I guess the idea there is um, as long as you're not in combat, you would always have it available, which, fine. Except the spell is second level, except the spell is third level, but you only get the one spell still. I'll tune to the artifact, you get a plus one bonus to AC. Okay. But again, those are minor properties, so four minor properties. Wait, so a minor property could be just to cast one third level spell. Major, although again, Frey with the Blessing, it's weird how the Blessing kind of is stronger. Because she can already cast, what, Cone of Cold, which is like a fifth level spell? Major beneficial properties. One of your ability scores increase. Oh, that's another thing they get to do is they get to examine the crown they got. Uh, and that crown... Have I made that in here yet? I could, I could reveal to you guys what that crown is. You guys are probably going to lose your shit because I might have made it too strong. <laughs> I did not. Okay, I need to do that. Uh, I need to pull up my notes then. If you haven't realized, I really like making magic items. And... But <laughs> I'm having to scale up my magic items too. So the original... I already had it open. Uh, was a Berserker's Axe that they could have gotten. Obviously, I, I didn't do that because that was... You know, Frey is the only one that would use it, and she already had a magic axe that I've turned into. Uh, what does the critical role dude call it? Um, a vestment of something where it like levels up and can expand things. Uh, let's see. So that was found in the room. Was it also Vikan's tomb? Okay. Oh, I didn't make this. I made one for the shield and the belt. Make it right now and show you, and you guys can lose your shit on it. Or maybe not. Again, this is, you know, I'm trying to scale things up and be like, all right, that this is a high-level area, and here's the kind of loot you should find. Also, um, Vikan's crown. I guess I can copy and paste from here. is going to be a wondrous item. Very rare. Requires attunement. Again, and if it requires attunement, you know, you gotta look at what everybody's got and be like, alright, is this worth it? So here's my idea for this crown, which I did describe previously. The crown has six different gems embedded in each of its prongs. Each gem is a different color. As a bonus action, a player can touch one of the gems to gain its bonus and lose the previous bonus if applicable. The bonus lasts until another gem is activated. Only one bonus can ever be active at a time. And pretty quickly you can realize they're all different of uh, the Iun stones that increase a stat by two. So you touch the Onyx one, your strength score increases by two. The Ruby, your con score increases by two. The Emerald, your deck score increases by two. I literally had all, just all six attributes. You can... Basically, pick and choose which one you want to increase by two with a bonus action. I thought that's pretty damn cool. Now, mechanically, it might be crazy, especially when it comes to con, because that can start fucking up your hit points a lot, especially at this level. Um, but, I, you know, I just think it's, you know, in, in combat, you can be like, all right, I need to increase my deck so I get more AC and more initiative. Or maybe here I need to increase my, you know, strength or my 
you know, wisdom because they're gonna get some wisdom saves coming in. So you can change it, and it's a bonus action. So you you know, it's designed to be changed in combat. But I did include the fine print to a maximum of twenty. So you you can't go too crazy with it. You know, it still has the um the limit there. And nothing, Jason. The answer is nothing. What stops them from changing it every time they need to do a different kind of thing? Nothing stops them. <laughs> I'm basically okay with it. Um, now I do see mechanically this being a pain in the ass to where I'm not sure a player would, would necessarily want to do this constantly because I think it would be a little bit of a pain in the ass to constantly modify your sheet. Although a digital character sheet is the best recipient for this, right? Because it would constantly change your shit around. The con one being, I think, a big headache because it would literally change your uh, hit points to a degree. So it'll be interesting to see, first of all, if they're excited about it because, you know, I, I have to... If it requires attunement, so it's got to be as good as somebody, you know, everybody else's attuned items. And B, if somebody just says, well, you know, yeah, I'll take this, but I just want it for, you know, whatever it is going to be, more like 12 more hit points or something, and just put it on con and leave it at that forever. That's fine too. Or you might have somebody, and, and Raymond is probably the best example of this, who who will take advantage of it and be like, yeah, I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to be doing this crazy thing. I want to I wanna up my decks right now. Or... Um, you know, I need to shore up this stat, so I'm going to up this stat, you know, so they may actually change it quite a bit. I, I don't know. It'll be an interesting experiment, I guess, to see if they enjoy it. But that was that was my idea with it. I basically looked at combining a bunch of the Eon Stones, uh, which are the ones that they come in all different flavors and they kind of orbit you around. And I got rid of the whole, like, you know, people targeting them and things because that was, I never liked that aspect of people being able to, like, target and destroy your magic items. So yeah, that's my idea with the uh, the crown, which means they got a total of three attunable items out of that dungeon, which is actually a lot more than I was planning on it. Uh, the belt of frost giant strength, which went to Frey, the shield, which um, went to Thimbleweed, and then now this uh, crown, which I don't know who it will go to, but that is quite a bit, which is probably good because I don't know, I don't think the Caves of Hunger exactly have a whole lot of loot in them. It's mainly just a very scary dungeon that you have to get through. Alright, so anyway. Back to... I'm glad I, I put that together. I'd forgotten to put that as a handout in there. Uh, so to do the Codicil, what are the other options? Uh, so, oh, that's reminded me because the ability score is increased by two. That's, that's what reminded me of it because that was the whole thing about that crown. Uh, while attuning the artifact, you gain 1d6 hit points at the start of your turn if you have at least one hit point. So just straight up regen, although a pretty minor one. You hit with a weapon attack while tuned to the artifact. The target takes an extra 1d6 damage of the weapon's type. Could choose it like it increases your weapon damage for cold. Walking speed increases by 10 feet. Lord knows this party doesn't need that. You can use an action to cast one fourth level spell. After you cast the spell, roll a d6. On a roll of 1 to 5, you can't cast it again until the next dawn. Such a weird thing. I guess you just have a very rare chance of being able to cast it again. 5th, 6th, or 7th level. While tuned to the artifact, you can't be blinded, deafened, petrified, or stunned. Wow. That's a big one. You can also give it detrimental properties. I don't think... Does Aural have any weaknesses? Like, I guess fire. Um, I'd have to look at her stat block, but I don't know if that would give you any weaknesses, necessarily. I feel like it's only her... 
first form that had the fire weakness, or is it this one too? Oh no, she does have a fire vulnerability, okay. Uh, that could be interesting. Could have you take on that vulnerability. It doesn't say it has detrimentals, right? It's just optional. It could have as many as four detrimental properties and two major detrimental properties. That's if it's like an evil cursed artifact, which she's kind of an evil goddess. Oh, that's cool. Non-magical flames are extinguished within 30 feet of you. That's actually really appropriate. Yeah, I mean, like I said, Frey can already, she's already got immunity to cold damage, and she can cast Cone of Cold once per day. A foul stench. Oh, I do like the non-magical flames are extinguished. It, which is pure flavor. Like, they, you know, they, all of them have dark vision except, I think, for Celeste, and then I think somebody can cast light, I assume? Jesus. Other creatures can't take short or long rest within 300 feet of you. That's insane. Animals within 30 feet of are hostile. Your flaws amplified. Those are minor ones. Right? I rolled really close a bunch of flame skulls. Sounds like a fun time. It does indeed. It does indeed. When you first attune to the artifact, it gives you a quest determined by the DM. Again, she's she's kind of already bound. Alright, this is an interesting table, though. Her ability to all damage is the major detrimental. Oh, wow. Yeah, those are powerful shit. Eye of Vecna, Hand of Vecna, Wand of Orcus. Jeez. Those are, like, campaign-level things. This one doesn't feel like it's on quite that same level, but, I mean... Yeah, I'll probably use some of these and then combine some other effects, but... And again, totally optional if somebody actually wants to attune to it or not. I would, I would, I would say they could obviously still open, you know, read the rhyme and open uh, the path to get to the Caves of Hunger without actually having to attune to it. That would just be a bonus thing. But I do like that it would give you vulnerability to fire damage if you did attune to it. And... Um, Snuffing out all non-magical flames. They're cool ideas. Alright, we still need to go over... Caves of Hunger. I think we left off... Ring of Winter. Yeah, Ring of Winter was a weird one in, in Tomb Annihilation. I don't think we ever actually... Correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think... Did I ever give... I don't... I don't think my players actually ever had the Ring of Winter, right? I think... Artists still had it the whole time. I think he never really used it. I was kind of befuddled on how best to use that thing. You can make a whole campaign about it if you wanted to. That it was just like a side thing in that campaign. I did mention not wanting to do these snow golem things to where I may actually even just block this room off. I mean, it feels like there's just plenty here. And this whole area is just a big room full of snow golems with nothing going on. And I don't have anything I need to necessarily put up here. I mean, there's tons of content here already. So I'm probably just going to block off this extreme upper right room. So I wanted to add more vampire spawn for some reason. No, they didn't. Okay. Once attuned, the item cannot be unattuned. Uh, yeah, that's a that's a cursed item at that point. 
Um, I need to read real quick on the actual layer of the vampires. He hangs out in 19. Old vampire. Which we also need to beef his stat block up. We'll probably talk about that better next week. We'll actually start using him. I don't see us having to use him this week. Hide cave, slippery ice. Uh, and then 20 is the ice crypt, which is actually where his lair is, I believe. There's no interest in treasure. Man, that kind of sucks. You get all the way to the vampire's lair and he's got nothing. <laughs> but it is the way to, like, make him stop harassing you. So the large tunnels, I believe, were formed by Remorazes that are lurking in the middle of the map. Almost going to get there. Let me get to 821. 20-foot high cave is the frozen, well-preserved corpse of a frost giant. Frost giant named Vlagomir was walking across the glacier when Ethrin fell to its doom. The giant was crushed to death as Nithery City plunged into a deep crevasse and became buried under tons of ice. That was 2,000 years ago. Giant had nothing of value. Okay. So two disappointing rooms, I guess, that have like things that you think you'd interact with and you can't actually interact with either of them. That's a bummer. <laughs> can't do anything? Okay. I should put something there of interest, at least. Some kind of one-time blessing or curse or something? I don't know. The whole... Hmm. This whole site is kind of disappointing, honestly. It's a really bullshit side of the map, but the players don't know that. Um, there's a room full of shadows, which I think we need to put them on the GM layer. Um, there's the boss Wraith, who I think does have some loot, at least. There's a bunch of vampire spawn they can fight. Snow golems, which I'm probably going to nuke that whole room. And then the actual no vampire boss fight, who has no loot. Quiet rooms are good. I mean, yeah, I'm not saying every room has to have a thing in it, but this is this feels like the climax of one of the branches that you go down. Like literally, the vamp, like you fight the it's it's a boss battle. You fight the vamp, you fight the big vampire in H19, and you expect like, all right, now we can reward ourselves. There's nothing. <laughs> the reward is that he stops fighting you, I guess. Sure, we can work with something there. So I did forget that. Am I gonna have to zoom out more? Jeez. All right, we're zooming out more. 30%. Wow, there we go. That's a little bit better. Alright, so the crazy part is when they get to H10 they can make a big choice. They can either continue going north, which then actually leads east, and they can do the entire upper end of the map, or they can take this giant ice slide down, which was a natural tunnel carved from borehole, as we call them. Uh, carved out of the Remorazes, which lurk in the middle of the map. Which, technically, the party could skip. If they stick the entire right side of the map and never go down a slide, you can actually skip it. But, it's kind of like a marquee mini-boss fight, for sure. And I, I did use the Remorazes before, early in the campaign, with the whole Goliath uh, side quest. I featured it as a kind of a Monster Hunter boss fight. It was really fun. I think one of the more fun boss fights we've had in the campaign. And I'm actually okay with using them again here because here it's not a boss fight. It's just like in the middle of a dungeon. But what I could probably do 
at the very least, instead of one mama and three babies, uh, maybe we do two parents, two adult Remorazes. And then we can have maybe the two kids somewhere else. It does actually say that, Jason, that Tekalili should be fucking with the players constantly. I think it even has suggestions on how to do that, which is one reason I need to tweak his stat block, though, because as written, he would just absolutely... In fact, I think others, and maybe even you, has said that he gets destroyed by even the party that this is designed for. As written, he's just not that strong. Let's so say you can stage an encounter with Tekalili anywhere you like, and it should, yeah, you should meet him several times, drain the party's resource, and retreat and recover before attacking again. If he ever takes more than 20 damage during an encounter, which would literally happen in a single round, I think, with this party. Vampire turns to mist and withdraws to a safe location in the dungeon, which I think that still takes a fucking action for him to do. He doesn't just do that, like, automatically. Unless I'm wrong. Uh... Does it say how he turns into mist on here? Smell, rampage, generation, oh, shapeshifter. Yeah, he uses action to polymorph into a large or medium cloud of mist. So it still takes his action to do it. I assume the mist can't be targeted then? It's a cloud of mist. Yeah, so I, I do plan on using it because I think that ups the horror. The psychic hauntings are a great source of the horror. And this literal vampire monster hunting you is a great source of horror. But you've got to ratchet it up. And I think the best way to do it is actually give him some subtle spells that can fuck with the players. Like Confusion and Dominate Monster and Crown of Madness and a lot of those kind of things. So I think the vampire spellcaster stat block with like some different spells. Uh, or the other thing is you turn him into the predator. You give him the greater invisibility spell, which the vampire spellcaster does have. And all of a sudden... He's not infallible because literally like a simple fairy fire or something could work. But that makes him a lot deadlier and then he can get up and like try to bite people and claw at them and do some more uh, crazy things. Target can see the vampire, which is not going to be the case. Frighten for one minute. I think he can frighten everybody. And I think giving him even like legendary or layer actions could help a lot as well, which I think are just going to be under the normal vampire thing so we're gonna have to spend a whole session like working on this guy which is probably gonna be next week um to try and devise areas he would work well in and uh a stat block that's actually gonna be that's that's an effective gorilla stat block we're getting there don't jump ahead uh yeah stage counter anywhere like you're not sure where it might be or how it should behave roll a d6 and consult the location table table determines where the vampire is first encountered so the suggestions for encounters, which is actually a good list of suggestions, is area H6, which is very early, but it's cool because he can mist, mist form, or he can basically attack them through the slits of the tower, which is kind of cool. Uh, make their way through area H5 or H7 when they come back around. Exits the ruined tower in mist form, assumes it's large hyena form and attacks. You know what, game? Do you not know how your game works? Because that takes a full action for it to do that. And then it just gets surrounded and killed by the players. Like, come on, man. Ugh, it drives me crazy. Like, you, the action economy is just brutal for the DM. In most cases, you have single tough enemies. You gotta use these things. These things have to be bonus actions or legendary actions or something, man. Uh, H12. 
That's a good one. After the or while he's fighting the shadows, yeah. Or he waits for the encounter with the shadows to conclude. I don't know why you do that before attacking the party in large uniform. So basically, the shadow fight would be a good opportunity. Um, H nineteen, which is obviously his own boss layer. H23, which we're getting more into the middle area. Okay. Hiding inside the steam rising from the pool. And, okay, this one does say he joins the fight during the Remoraz fight. That's crazy. That's really interesting. Uh, 32. Just kind of this random room down here. Dex care as soon as they enter. I actually need to look at that one. Site-based location based on what they enter. Okay. And then 36 is like the uh, the Dryad breeze down there so mainly six to the right and middle part of the map now I believe it was Stan who mentioned last time that we could use uh, Avarice's crew and Avarice herself as the people who came in here and got attacked and maybe they found their own way towards Ethrin and, and that way we can have kind of um, environmental storytelling with these bodies lying around or being dragged off or something and I thought about it, but I think I still want to use Avarice as the force that arrives, which is actually as written in the book, um, where she arrives with her forces after the party gets to Aetherin, then she basically makes her way through the Cave of uh, Hunger with her Shardalin folks, and then she's another player um, for the end game. We're taking up a bunch of, like, you know, red shirts and do some cool, like, cinematic stuff with Far Realm creatures coming in. Um, but what we do have are the Dark Elves that actually came up from the Underdark, and they're just a completely, like, they've tunneled up into the Caves of Hunger, they were looking, they they found Aetherin, I actually forget the backstory, and I need to look it up, um, but we can actually have them more spread out, maybe showcase them having a few more bodies everywhere uh, in some areas, and the party will be like, what is, you know, what is going on here? So I think, I think I may keep that idea of having, um, you know, dead bodies, or at least uh, traces of bodies, I don't know if the vampires would leave too much behind. But there is a whole faction of Dark Elves that came up here. Alright, so H22, there's like multiple slides. Yeah, H22 goes down to 23, and then 10 slides all the way down to 24. At 23, we've got two young Remorazes. Um, with eggs. You can actually pick up an, an undamaged Remoraz egg. It can be sold to an interested buyer and bring Shannon for up to 500 gold. You'd probably have to keep it warm, though, wouldn't you? Remember, as mother in 24, so this is an easy way to scale this up. I can just replace one of the young ones with an adult. So instead of having to fight one adult Remoraz, what level were the players at when they did that? This map is huge. It is insanely big. This is the one mega dungeon they've got, and it's not even the... It's, it's not an epic climax of this adventure. It's literally like a way station. It's a, it's a you have to just enter this place, get to the other side of it, and then you get to the end game, which is crazy to me. This might be one of the best parts of the campaign, just because I love dungeon crawling and it actually does the horror thing pretty decently well. It's just that I'm have to scale it up. Uh, let's see. I was gonna look up what what level they were for the Remoraz fight. Which was a good boss fight, which, correct me if I'm wrong, that was one adult and two or three young ones, I believe. Um, they were level nine. It was session 55. So at level nine, I believe they fought... Yeah, it was one adult and two 
Youngs as a big boss fight. So now at 12, is making them fight two adults and two youngs too much? I love the word sanguinate. Great shit. Sanguine, like all the all the blood words. <laughs> it's very cool. Very vampire-y. Like it's like a it's both sexy and creepy of, of just a word. Remorazes are so depending on the dice. They have just the one attack, but it's a monster attack. They can bite and swallow and eat you. Into cold and fire, average of 200 hit points, 17 AC, just a very easy creature. And they deal damage back when you hit them, which is fire damage, which, man, if Ray takes that vulnerability, that's fucking brutal. But I think that's how we scale it up. I think we make, I think we do two adults. Two adults and two, two adults, two children. <laughs> Tickets for the Remoraz fight, two adults, two children. Remoraz's tremor sense alerts them to the presence of intruders. Why do you see the pools causing steam to rise from them? The water's not hot enough to deal damage. I, I did change that in my boss fight. I did have, I believe, the water hot enough to deal some damage. But that should be a cool marquee moment of this area. If they can rest in here. Oh, like afterwards? I mean, there should be areas where they can... I, I have no qualm about them short resting almost anywhere. In terms of long resting... I don't know, that's, that gets trickier. That gets a lot trickier. They still have a Laoman's Tiny Hut. There are definitely areas where they could just set it up. And this, I mean, the vampire is actively patrolling them, but I don't know what kind of things it would set up. I guess maybe try to set up an ambush as soon as they stop the long rest. My players are very good about not abusing long rests. In fact, I, they almost go too far the other way. They, go, they almost hardly short rest, although lately. <laughs> when I put them through... Finally, a bunch of shit. They start finally had to, having to short rest and actually use their hit dice during the last excursion. Uh, west of Area H24, Remoraz Tunnel leads to the Underdark, which I believe is where our Dark Elves came from. It's literally just a tunnel from to, off the campaign. The latter option is beyond the scope of this adventure. Uh, empty side caves. These caves are both empty, although one of them might contain a psychic haunting. That's actually a good opportunity to use that. But otherwise, they are free to you know, hang out and rest, and they've got little choke points and stuff, so... I don't see how they complete this without a long rest. I mean, part of it depends on just the luck they have in figuring out where to go. If they try to do half to all of this map, then yes, they're, all, they're very much going to have to long rest. But technically, you don't have to do that now. Again, this is the burden of knowledge. I know where they need to go. They don't know that. They literally start in this upper left corner. Their entire goal is to get to the lower right corner, but they don't know they have to get to the lower right corner. They might think they have to get to the middle of the map. They think they have to get to the upper right corner. Like, they just have no clue. So it's just going to be randomly, depending on what path they choose, they could end up with a very efficient path towards the end, which is basically you take the slide down, you fight the big Remoraz fight, which is a nice, cool, big fight. You go down to H26, you take another slide down, you meet with the Dryad, who basically tells you, you know, some useful information about where, you know, hey, this tunnel down here leads to Aetherin, and this one, you know, I've seen some Dark Elves pass through here, and there's a vampire lurking around that I'm scared of. And then the players can literally just exit from there and not, and not fuck around with, what, 60% of this map at that point? And you can just kind of let them because it's that open. 
So if that's the case, then they I think they can make it through without even long, or maybe you know long resting after at the end of that because I think the vampire is supposed to do a final showdown I guess here with the dryad if they're not going to go any further. And then there's Nothics down here too. So it really depends on how much they do. Um, I, I'm definitely willing to let them long rest in here. I will say that you know, and the same thing with um, the mega dungeon at the end of Tomb of Annihilation. I, I definitely let them long rest. You know, they had to long rest a couple times. That dungeon's ridiculous. So I'm, I'm definitely willing to do that. They've got the Layman's Tiny Hut, and the only patrolling monsters is the Null Vampire, who does have some underlings under his command. So I can I can use that to kind of jack with them a little bit, and I can maybe force like them to go through like psychic hauntings. Um, although I have to look at the rule for Layman's Tiny Hut and see if that blocks, that would block the effects. If they choose to use it, I would assume they would want to. I think they only have two more uses of it, though, based on that item they got. But a, a big, uh, yeah, so it, it's going to be really, really interesting to see where all they go and what they do, because a, a lot of this dungeon is entirely optional. Egg-shaped cave in H26, which is just where my Kateva Psychic Haunting, and it goes down to another, yep, it goes to the end. Uh, the West Observation Point. So now we get into the lower left corner of the map, which again, super optional if you want to go down this tunnel. Uh, Forest of Icicles. South Walls of Cylindrical. Domed building made of seamless black stone decorated with faintly glowing constellations, which is cool. Uh, Rhyme covered statues of human wizards. Building of statues are raised by five foot high curved stone platform. Page 28 for a description of the stone building's interior. Oh, I love that we get like bits of ether and have like crashed and are embedded in the ice here. Always cool. And this is where the drow are stationed. Where does it talk about the drow? Talk about it at the beginning or is it here at age? Let's see. LA location. Nope, doesn't say it there. Okay, so let's scooch down to um, Drow Mage and Drow Mage named Ilsebek Dalambra. Turn this partially collapsed nether. He's building into an outpost. From here, he intends to launch a full-blown expedition into the ruins of Ethrin, which he and his fellow Drow discovered a few weeks ago. The Drow entered the Caves of Hunger by scaling a Remoraz tunnel, which is here. Using a sending spell, Isablik has asked the matron mother of his house to send reinforcements, but they are weeks away. No desire to share his recent discovery with potential rivals, nor does he trust surface dwells. For this reason, characters can't persuade Isablik to join forces with them. Still, though, you'd think there'd be an opportunity for a social scene here. I mean, it just, it's, it's totally unexpected. You're like, oh shit, drow. Um, what is the... I don't think drow mage or elite warrior are very strong, so we have to up that too. Uh, well, CR7 is better than I thought, but I mean, 45 hit points is laughable. Greater Invisibility, Cloud Kill, Everett's Black Tentacles, Lightning Bolt, those are pretty fun spells. But if he gets targeted, he dies instantly. <laughs> if there's any more Drow variants I can use. Obviously, we can increase the number of Drow. Here we go. House Captain, Inquisitor, Favorite Consort. Now we're talking. We could have like Driders in here. You know, I'm, uh, the one blind spot I really have in my 5e repertoire is I've never really used the Underdark at all. We, you know, I mean, I guess they only have Out of the Abyss as the the Underdark, the big Underdark campaign. 
And obviously I've used a lot of those creatures because they appear in a lot of campaigns, but I feel like that's such a main part of the Forgotten Realms specifically, and we've just never really exploited any of that. Shadow Blade, we've got a couple fun creatures we could use. Are they strong enough? CR 11, okay, okay. Shadow step, multi-attack, yeah, we could have, you know, maybe instead of having a bunch of minions, we could have just like an elite party. I wonder if that would be more interesting. The players enter the Underdark. Um, I mean, <laughs> yes and no. Yes, meaning there's nothing I can do to stop them. No, meaning there's no content there for them. <laughs> I'm not going to make content for them. Um, yeah, it just says... It's clear the characters end up here. They are no longer on track to find Ether, and the only option is return to the Caves of Hunger, continue exploring the Underdark. The latter option is beyond the scope of this adventure. Like, you can describe that it plunges down for a long time, and... Well, yeah, the problem is they, they may not realize it. I'd, I'd have to do a good job of describing... That makes sense for a mile into the glacier before preaching a stone cavern lit by bioluminescent moss growing on the walls, which would, I think, clue people into that they've entered an entirely different biome of the Underdark. And hopefully they would know that it's Aether is in the glacier and not in the Underdark. The Arcane Eye. Show them the whole map and then get it pretty early. Yeah, that Arcane Eye is really making me nervous. Um, there was a, I think a, a patron in the Discord mentioned that uh, one thing you could do is make somebody pluck their own eye out to activate the Arcane Eye, which is actually something that happens in Aetherin. There's a there's a, in the in the original Tower of Divination. I'm going I'm to use the expanded towers, but the original tower you can locate something. I don't know what they would need to locate at that point. Um, they've already found Etherin, and you can like ask it anything almost, and it will tell you. But then it plucks your eye out and puts you. Um, it, it's got like a jar of floating eyes and sucks your eyeball into there, which is pretty cool and horror and horrific. But this one makes it sound like it's it's a. It's a fun little like, hey, enjoy this tour thing. So I don't know if it would be appropriate to suck somebody's eyeball out to activate it. Unless I rethemed it completely and it's this dark. Maybe I put that orb here you know, and it's got a jar of floating eyes. Like I could move it and put that orb of floating eyes on this pedestal here and say, hey, this is, you know, and, and maybe through context clues, they can realize that they can activate it. The, instead of it being you can locate whatever you want, um, maybe you can still cast the Arcane Eye spell, but it does cost your eye, which is pretty crazy. I believe it can only be cured with Greater Restoration. So that's that's a thing. I could go back to the horror theme and, and turn it into there, because with my expanded Towers, I believe that doesn't use the same rooms. So okay, let's go back to the Drow. Uh, drow Elite Warriors. As of written, there's only two... Drow Warriors and one Drow Mage. That's pretty low level. It tries to summon a Shadow Demon to assist. That's something Drow Mages can do. Shadow Demon is a CR4. Thermal Cube. So they did go into Aetherin. Okay. Spellbook. And that's it for loot. Uh, what is in 29 then? Oh, those are the Piercers. Yeah, the Ice Piercers. So I can use the Ice. I was going to use those in H... Um, Five, but I can use them again down here too because that's just fun. <laughs> Bunch of dangerous looking icicles come down and attack. Well, we can definitely increase the number of drow here and really turn into a bigger thing and and maybe even a potential social encounter if somehow the players 
play their cards right and gain and get some information. Because uh, it's a it's a very unexpected thing. You're in this like evil cave full of monsters and things. And all of a sudden, there's just an outpost. You know, there's tower full of drow that are like fighting you off. Nerf does the eye only lasted for a little bit. They got to go through around ten rooms. That's a good idea because otherwise, I think it lasts for an hour and there's no. You know, it's invisible. So unless you have a mage that can specifically see invisible that can cast a spell magic, it would just literally last for an hour and presumably with no and it get it gets blocked by doors so, and it can't open doors. But guess what? There's no fucking doors in this entire place. So literally, Arcane Eye is like the best possible spell. You could see everything. So yeah, I do like the idea that it would not last nearly an hour, but instead let you look at a, yeah, a 10 rooms or so. Actually, that would be incredibly useful still. But I'm still liking the idea that maybe it does pluck your eye out. and I'd have to skip ahead to the Towers of Magic and make sure that's not still in that one because that would be uh, adding to the dark theme in here. Or maybe it's too much. I don't know. Uh, H30 is a cool idea. I don't know if I'll use it. And unfortunately, it's on the map, which is this leftover spear from a frost giant, um, which weirdly his remains are found all the way up here, which have nothing. It's that H21, I think, room. His spear is here. Instead of this being a magic item, uh, what does it say? When he died, the warrior spark was bound to the spear. The first time a barbarian fighter monk or ranger touches the spear, it basically turns you into a giant. You gain one foot of height every hour and become proportionally heavier until you stand 21 feet tall and weigh 7,700 pounds. Uh, when you're 9 feet tall, your strength becomes 19, unless it's already higher. For every 3 additional feet of height you gain, your strength increases by 1 to a max of 23. Basically turns you into a frost giant. I don't think I can use that because uh, I already gave Frey a belt of frost giant strength. So that already kind of does that. And her whole thing is being pint-sized but like really strong and I feel like it would um, be a weird character thing to just turn her into a giant. So it's kind of a first blessed thing. I don't, I don't know. So I don't think I'm going to use that, but I'm, it's, unfortunately it's on the map. I don't know what else to do with it. I may block this room off. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I'm going to determine what else to do with anything. I had to crawl around parts of either. Yeah. What's funny is we do have a barbarian, a monk, and a ranger. So, and, and I guess it, it could always, you know, the, the monk or ranger could touch them and literally become, like, giant-sized. Um, weirdly, I don't think it would matter to either. I mean, having a giant-sized Thrykreen is hilariously scary. But he uses, you know, his ranged attack mostly uses dex. I guess you could switch to strength when you attack with your sword. And same with the monk. Usually you attack with dex as a monk, but I guess you could presumably just switch to strength if you suddenly had a strength of 23. Ring clothing you are carrying and weapons you are carrying magically increase in size to match your growth. So I guess it doesn't necessarily have to go to the barbarian. I'll think on it. We've got a while to think on it, so I don't have to make that choice yet. But uh, otherwise, it's a way shorter path than obviously the upper right path, which is full of monsters and rooms. This one just basically has the drow outpost, and then it leads just, you know, little small tunnels with nothing in them, leads directly to the end, which is, uh, oh, we forgot about the thing in the ice, yeah. Shoot, we still have, oh, I've already got an hour, guys, and I still have like six rooms to go. This is crazy. I think we'll have to save the thing in the ice till next time, but it's a really cool, it's what helps give me the motivation to turn, um, Etherin into like the mist of like just creature like a portal somewhere and creatures coming through from the far realm 
and I like the idea that it only happened recently with ever since um, basically they found it and like somehow Nas like activated the Mithalar from afar, like kind of recharged it or re-sparked it, but it's, you know, damaged. And so it's instead of, you know, powering up the city, it's just kind of opened up this tear into like the far realm is letting all these creatures in there. So we're going to turn maybe parts of the city of Ether into this just kind of monster mayhem craziness happening. Um, and then this is going to be like a teasing that basically as this thing is emerged all the way from here as written, it's just, it has no, you know, it's just a, I don't know, a random thing from the far realm that's, that can, uh, it grabs you and casts like dominate monster, just kind of probes your thoughts. And then it does psychic damage unless somebody like has frees you out of it. But, uh, definitely a cool idea and something that motivates me to do more cool, creepy far realm stuff in Etherin itself for sure. Yeah, long-term madness, something to get also, which I do plan on playing around with the madness table with the psychic haunts. Uh, maybe long-term madness, but maybe have it not be literally long-term, maybe somewhere between, like an hour instead of it being like, you know, 20 hours or something. Might be more appropriate uh, for people that, you know, fall debilitating on these things, so that way you can do multiple psychic haunts. Along with that. All right, I need to wrap this up. We've got a mummy in here that's not hostile, which is pretty funny. Um, there's a dryad the party can talk to that's got a lot of information basically the only like non-hostile creature willing to like talk to the players in this whole place which is at the very end that they don't again know that's the end but and then technically the vampire makes his last stand here there's some nothics which again teases what they're what's going on in etherin so you know the tricky thing about this whole dungeon is they just don't know where to go and they don't know how to explore it versus us which have the the burden of knowledge we're looking at everything i'm at 30 percent zoom right now um, so I don't know if this area is going to take, you know, three or four sessions and they're going to beeline it right to the end, unbeknownst to them, or we could be in here for like six or seven sessions, even if they end up just really going crazy and exploring everywhere and checking everything out, in which case, yeah, we'll have to accommodate rests and all that. So we will see what we'll be in here for, um, at least a little while and have plenty of more time to prep. And thankfully, I don't think we're going to get too very far uh tomorrow because we've got a level up and then we've got a lot of social fallout from all the crazy stuff that happened uh two weeks ago at the end of the Arles abode chapter but i believe that will do it for this week's crafting ice windale if you enjoy the content please do check out patreon.com slash rogue watson shouts to platinum patrons joe will thomas stan william brandon genocider david eclectic role play role christopher brian william david Corey, go 1337 kyle matthew big nut greenlee john and john and gold patrons, RPG, Papercrafts, Pretty Boy, and Yuma, Marcus, Dead Lizard, Lion, Sam, Olympia Spuds, Jerome, Nathan, Fasica, Tortoise, Scott, Stephanie, Rufus, and Carolyn. Thank you all very much for your support. I will see you for DND tomorrow night. Back.